How is it possible that you moved to one of the chicest, if not the chicest cities in the world, and not find an even passable martini? Today's guest is living proof that anything is possible. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Today joining me is the inimitable Forrest Collins, founder of 52martinis.com, which chronicles her search for the best cocktail bars in Paris, as well as loads of other cocktail news from all over France. She is the creator of the iOS app Paris Cocktails and host of the radio show and podcast Paris Cocktail Talk. As a freelance writer, she has written for Drinks International, Serious Eats, The World's Best Bars site, Punch Drinks, and so many other publications about the Paris cocktail scene. Forrest is the Academy Chair for France for the World's 50 Best Bars and President of the France Chapter of Les Dames d'Escoffier. We met during Venice Cocktail Week, and now I can't imagine a time when I didn't know her. But before you get to meet her, too, did you know that you can now watch Forrest's episode, plus all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more on YouTube? So check out the Lush Life YouTube channel. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now, here's Forrest. I am so excited to have you on the show. Um, we met during Venice Cocktail Week, and I cannot believe that I don't know you already for a thousand years. Right? I mean, I uh, like I said, when we met, it's a small world, but it's still a big world that we can have not crossed paths or met before. I know. I should have known Forrest Collins. Likewise. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I know you, but everyone else might not, unless they've been to 52martinis.com. Tell me a little bit about how this American got to Paris. Well, so many Americans have that dream of living in France, right? Like Paris is kind of the big, ah, holy grail for so many Americans. And it was for me. You know, I was a Francophile as a child. I had this big poster of a French chateau in my bedroom. And it's just, you know, I always wanted to end up here. And I think that I really ended up here just because I was stubborn. I came for six months. And at the end of six months, I thought, I'm not ready to go home yet. And that was over 20 years ago now. So, um, so yeah, I ended up here. I was not in Paris. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. We got to go back a little bit more. We got to go back. So where, where were you born? Where were you thinking? Where were you dreaming about Paris from? I was born in Texas, Sweetwater, Texas, a tiny little town. But I grew up a little bit all over. My dad was in the military, so total military brat. So lived in Texas and England and Hawaii and Washington. And the list goes on. But, you know, those are kind of the greatest hits. And why do you think Paris held a special place for you? Had you seen a movie or, you know, did something happen? Or do you always long to go there? I just think, you know, it's just something that's sort of ingrained in the at cultural references in the U.S. You know, I just think this, just the idea of the romantic ideas we have of it before, before the reality of actually living here sets in and the Eiffel Tower, just all the imagery, the Eiffel Tower and the Arc de Triomphe and all of the 
amazing historic and beautiful architecture and just the city. It's beautiful. So I think just having seen images and I don't even, you know, I don't even know where I first, how I first became aware of it. You know, it probably was movies or television or talking to friends. And, you know, then of course, eventually as I got older in school, I started taking French classes. And so then you hear even more about it. So, um, so I think, you know, a lot of it was just kind of that, like probably films, books. Uh, yeah. Again, I just think it's, it's something that Americans are, you know, there's a lot of Americans living here and a lot of Americans visiting here. So I think that it's something sort of always in the collective consciousness. Yes. And it, as you said, it is a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. Now, what brought you over there in the first place for those first six months? Um, I decided I needed a break and I had my own business. It was a small business, had to do with legal support for lawyers. And it was fine, but I just, I wanted something different. I wanted a break. So I sold my business. It gave me just enough money to come over here for six months. So I bought my ticket. I left my apartment and came. And then I was taking some French classes and I was in a small town called Annecy. So I wasn't in Paris to begin with. I specifically chose a small town because I thought, you know, it's going to be tough to learn French in a big city where so many people will speak English. And I also had some friends who were already living here. I thought, oh, I spent all my time with other Americans and that's not what I want. So I made a really big effort to be in a smaller town and to meet French people. So I went there. I took these classes. Now, my plan was slightly thwarted because once you're taking classes to learn French, you're immediately surrounded by a lot of people from everywhere but France. So, of course, (laughs) and English is what you can all speak in general. So, you know, you're speaking with all the Swedish people and the German people and the everybody in English. So it it wasn't quite as I planned, but it was a great experience. And Annecy is a beautiful town. And I did make a big effort to meet people outside of the of the school as well. So it it worked out pretty well. And I stayed there for a couple of years before I decided to come up to Paris with a little little tiny segue into Geneva and Switzerland for a year before coming up here. So, And did you have an idea of what kind of work you wanted to do after your courses in Annecy? No, I didn't. I mean, I really, you know, I thought, I just want to stay. You know, I want to, maybe I'll work in a bar. Maybe I'll eat basically anything. I was, I was thinking, uh-huh. I, I don't know. I didn't want to do the same thing I'd been doing before, which was working in the legal world, which also would have been a challenge because it's a different system here. And, and still my French was not great. So, so no, I didn't, didn't have a solid idea of what I wanted to do. Just France, France, France. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Pretty much. (laughs) So what kind of led you into what you're doing now or the bar world? Tell me what brought you up to Paris and why you even started 52 Martinis. Well, you know, I've always been, even before I moved to France, I have always been really like a big foodie, interested in food and drink and home entertaining and going to nice restaurants. And so this has always been kind of part of my world. And mm-hmm. when I moved to France, that's great because it is such an amazing place to eat and to drink as well. I mean, the wine culture here and the aperitif culture is so ingrained in daily life. And so I you know, was enjoying that. And after having been here for a few years, I was really starting to miss cocktails because that is one element, especially, you know, 20 years ago, that was pretty lacking in in French, in the French food and drinks world. I'm sorry. Did you feel that in Annecy? 
Or was this something that you realized, should I say, in Annecy? And then it was like underscored when you moved to Paris? I don't even think I was really honestly thinking about it that much in Annecy. Okay. I think that especially there and going to the school, it's it was sort of such a student life that, you know, a lot of times we were just going to the pub. We were grabbing a, grabbing a beer and I wasn't even really thinking. I was so enamored with being in a different place and, and challenged by learning the language and just having fun. And also really appreciating the nicely priced wines here. So didn't even really like didn't phase me. Whereas in the US, I would go out for cocktails quite often. But you know, things are a little bit inverse in the US. Cocktails can be very affordable. You've got a happy hour, they're decent. Whereas wine is very expensive. So when I got here and, and I saw that cocktails were kind of non-existent or very expensive, but wine is everywhere. So it didn't. It took me a, a few years uh -huh. before it really sunk in that, oh, hey, there's something missing here that I used to enjoy. And I, I want to find that again. So I think it was not thought about an Annecy. But once I got myself settled in Paris, definitely. And and I also, even while I was living here, traveled a lot. So I think my first few years, I was just getting settled and situated. And I didn't go home for a couple of years. But once I started going back home or traveling with other food and drinks friends to other places, to Germany or to Japan or to um, London, these places that, or New York, you know, that really, really embrace cocktail culture. And especially this at this time, it was around 2002. I guess when I was in Paris, it was more 2003, 2004. And this is really when the kind of the cocktail revolution kicked off again, this sort of cocktail renaissance that, that we are seeing now. So I think that's really like the travel outside of France and then coming back and realizing, hey, I miss that. I miss that from, you know, uh, we need that here. And so that is really what started 52 Martinis. It started just because I like to be very organized about things. So I thought I'm not just going to sort of randomly look for cocktails. I'm going to start this project where every Wednesday I have a couple friends and we go and we try a different bar and I'm going to order a martini just to have this really nice way to compare things, you know, kind of the standard of comparison. And so that's what I did. So it wasn't just like, oh, I think I'll start drinking cocktails. I was really actively looking for this. So what did you like? How did you even start? Was it the place around the corner or the Hemingway bar? You know, where where? That's a good question, because, you know, of course, I started where everybody starts when they want to know, what do I do? I was went to Google and uh -huh. um coincidentally, it was really just after the Experimental Cocktail Club had opened here. So my oh. first plan was, yes, I'll go to the Hemingway Bar. I'll go to Harry's, you know, for the Bloody, where, you know, they're famous for their Bloody Mary. Um, but I thought, okay, no, you know, there's got to be something else. So I stumbled across the Experimental. I did some reading and comments and, okay, it sounds like these guys are very serious about their cocktails. They also spent some time in New York. They were kind of bringing over the same style that you were seeing in places like the Pegu Club back in the day. And so I thought, all right, this sounds like a really good start for me and surprisingly good start when I was feeling so like, oh my God, there's nothing. And so I went and it was, it was great. The cocktails were good. My martini was excellent. They were, you know, asking really good questions. You know, do you want a, a, do you want a lemon zest or an olive? Whereas normally when you were going to French bars, especially then, um, when you asked for a martini, you would just get martini vermouth, you know, the sweet vermouth. Oh, I love it. And so it was really in the early days, you know, except for when I was happened to come across a place that like the experimental, most of my first visits were 
to places that, you know, you'd kind of look on, I don't know, Yelp or wherever to find where people were reviewing cocktails. And you'd go and they would be pretty mediocre. The, the you know, the first few places I was going to, it was this situation of you're getting kind of either sweet vermouth or warm gin that's very, very watered down. Yeah, it was it was a challenge in the beginning, for sure. I mean, it was, you know, hard to find places to go to. Whereas, you know, fast forward 20 years, now it's hard to cover all the places. And almost every cocktail menu has a martini. And I like to think that I'm part of the yeah. early wave that ushered in the martini as a, a very typical drink to find on a bar menu here. Now, let's talk about that love of martinis and why you started with a martini. Had you been a big martini drinker? And what is your martini of choice that you were judging them on? Well, I had been somewhat of a martini drinker. I had kind of been easing into it at that point. Once I really started exploring it, I just fell in love with it. It's both simple and complex. You know, I mean, basically it's it's gin and vermouth, but there's so many things that you can do to make a fantastic martini. You know, you want your glasses chilled, you want the proper dilution, you want you want your your cocktail to be cold. You you know, I like to add uh, orange bitters, which is you know kind of an old school way to do it. Um, whether or not you use an uh, olive or a lemon twist, and all of these things that that make a difference. So for me personally, I like a pretty standard London Dry gin, and I like about four parts gin to one part vermouth with a couple of orange bitters. I stir it, which I think most of us now in the cocktail world know that it's stirred, not shaken, but to be fair, every once in a while I do shake it if I want it a little tiny bit more diluted or I want it really, really cold. I'm not against it. I'm not going to say that's the, a, a terrible thing to do. But I generally, I stir. Those are my proportions. You know, I put it into an ice cold glass. I express lemon over it, but I don't drop the zest in because I don't really like that floating around in there. And lately, my different little touch is instead of the lemon zest, uh, well, I'll still express the lemon over. But to drop in there, I cut a tiny bit of confit lemon. What's the word when you've got those lemons in there? They're sitting around in um, preserved preserved lemons. Yes, preserved lemons. Yes. So tiny, just a tiny little bit of the um, peel on a stick because it's kind of it's kind of like an olive in that it's salty, but it's also got that citrus flavor to it. So that's my little garnish that I put into my martinis these days. Now, now it's tough. Now, I see you. I understand why a lot of bars were were not, I guess, floating your boat at the beginning because even though it sounds so simple, it is tough to make that really well. Yeah. So, I'm assuming that the majority of the places you went in the early days just weren't making the fifty two martinis dot com cut. No, not at all. And I think also that's um, something that's cultural because I think. When I would try to explain this to bartenders, you know, this is what I want, their eyes would get really big and they would say, that's a very strong drink. So I think that, you know, uh-huh. at back in, at, and at that time, you know, cocktail culture here was very like a tiny bit of vodka and a lot of juice. So anything that really didn't put forward the flavor of alcohol. So, you know, while the French might have a really nice digestif like a cognac or they're very into their whiskey, it's I think one of the biggest selling spirits in France. So, you know what, that kind of like a small drop straight is great. It really kind of threw them for a loop when it came to a cocktail that is primarily alcohol. I I even actually still had this. I went to a a bar this week and I said, oh, you know, they had this menu and they had a vieux carré on the menu. And the, the 
server, she came over and she said, can I recommend something for you? What do you, and I said, I'll have this right here. And she said, oh, but you know, that's very, that's a very strong one. And I said, yeah, I know I'm familiar with it. And even when I got it, it was pretty diluted. So, um, so I think culturally it's counter to what they think of. I mean, even though drinking wine and drinks are really an integral part of French life, drinking a cocktail like that is not really an integral part of French drinking culture. Do you think that's also a, g- a gender thing? It was because you're a woman that you wouldn't be able to handle such a such a alcoholic cocktail. Possibly, possibly. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, even historically in, in France, I think there was a lot of things being drunk like and by historically, I mean decades and decades ago, champagne punches and things like this that didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I've I've read now, I don't can't put my finger on it right this second, but you know, I've read research that talks about how the women didn't like that smell of alcohol on their breath. So maybe oh, okay. maybe that's something that's sort of carried on through the decades. I remember 30 years ago I, when I was at Cambridge um, and I ordered, because uh, I was I played rugby, I ordered a pint. And I remember a guy saying, oh, are you girlies drinking pints now? And I was like, yeah, we do. Hmm. Oh, you know? yeah. And we have, like, that was so surprising to me. I'd never... In the states, God, that's that had never happened. Where no. you know you have a glass of beer and someone says, "What? It's like too big for you." So, yeah. well, back to back to you and your your drinking discovery in Paris. Uh, so the experimental, fabulous. You got your what you wanted. You loved it, but there weren't that many experimentals. No, yeah, there weren't. There weren't. I mean, they they did. I mean, they expanded pretty quickly. You know, they opened, which is now closed, but the Curio Parlor and the Prescription. So. I mean, they've expanded so much now globally, but in the early days, you know, just it, it took a year or two and we were seeing better quality of the kind uh-huh. of cocktail bar that, you know, you or, my, you or I are used to now popping up. But yeah, it still was re- really a challenge. And But you kept doing, you kept writing for 52 Martinis? Yeah. I mean, back in the early days, I would write, regardless of whether it was good or bad, I would just write uh-huh. this, you know, this was my experience. Um, this is not a place to go for cocktails. And my feeling, my thinking was back in the time that I don't want, if something's, I don't want somebody to think because it's not on here, then it's fair game. I want people to know, nah, that's not such a good place to go. Now there's so many bars. I don't really have time to write about the the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I don't really go to places anymore that that are, you know, so, so bad as as the kind of places yeah. I was going in the beginning. Because now, I mean, we've just gone right. through, you know, we're on kind of a third generation of bartenders that are, you know, open, opening bars and creating places. And yeah, it's, it's easy to find something good now. Yeah. And how long do you think it took from your first fabulous drink at the Experimental to all of a sudden realizing, oh, my God, I'm getting really, really good martinis or cocktails kind of everywhere I'm going? Like, this is a thing. I would say five or six years. I think things really hit their stride in 2012 in Paris. That was the big year of explosion for cocktail bars. I think that's when, you know, all of these kind of much like the Pegu Club sort of spawned all these other bartenders that went off to create their own things. That is when it really started to flourish in Paris. These bartenders that had started working at the Experimental or um, at the Curio Parlor, et cetera, they were off creating their own. So I would say 2012, it was easy. And I would say really, but only in the past, I guess I'd say in the past four or so years, it's hard because, you know, we're coming out of COVID. So was it right before COVID or now? But now almost everywhere I go, 
I see the option for a martini on a menu. So 2012 exploded and it was easier. But now in the past five years, that's when really martinis are ubiquitous. Now, for you as a writer and as someone interested in drinks, how did you see, I guess, your business grow and you become such a presence in this world of drinks? You know, definitely one of the top industry people in in drinks. How did that progression happen for you just starting to write and then being, you know, the chairman of France for World's Best Bars? Yeah, well, that also was kind of an explosion that happened around 2012 when really people were just starting to take notice. It was no longer a niche interest of kind of the, you know, advanced, not trendsetters, but, you know, the the first the first people in. I think 2012 was when it started to kind of go, okay, the second round of people who know what, what's up. So that's when you started to get, I started to get a lot of people reaching out, wanting to talk to me, wanting to interview me, wanting to, you know, learn a little bit more about it. And, and that happened really quickly for me because I was the only, only site writing about cocktails at that time in English and probably the only site even, you know, uh, of the French sites that was writing exclusively about cocktails in Paris, you know, just real like deep dive knowledge, just Paris cocktail bars. So, you know, 2012, it started growing. And then as cocktails started going more mainstream, then, you know, you, that's when you sort of see me doing more things that, that I guess address like cocktail questions and needs. So deciding to start my podcast and, you know, the first inklings of thinking about doing a, my app for Paris cocktail bars and that kind of thing. And at the time, that's also around the time that the world's 50 best bars list began. And this is before it was associated with the organization that also handles the restaurants now. So this was very early days for that. And I had been invited to be a voter for that. This was also back when voters were public. The whole voting list was public. Obviously, that's changed since then. So yeah, so it was kind of slow going and just real passion project. And then it really, I realized that other people were noticing this and 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 having need for it. So it wasn't just, I'm creating this blog to share with my friends because every time they come to France, they want to know where to drink and it's easier to organize this information on a blog. It's like, oh, people that I don't even know want this information. So let's find some other formats where we can share this with with other people where I can get on the podcast and talk about the trends and traditions of drinking here. And, you know, and I can start putting together something that's more mobile in the app. So it was really exploding 2012 and then for the next several years. But then it also plateaued, you know, interest in me plateaued a bit because suddenly now it's mainstream. So now, now there's multiple sites. And, you know, I was getting lots of people reaching out saying, I love your blog. I want to do one too. And, you know, do you have any advice? Which is great for me because I I think that's great. I, I don't need to be the only person talking about it. And, you know, there's room for a lot of this discussion. So I don't want to just be the only one shouting in an empty room. But also that all, <laughs> that also means I am not the sole source for cocktail information, which is also fine because I have very specific tastes and opinions. So it's good for everybody to have something that they can they can go to for their information. Exactly, exactly. I, I feel the same way about the you. Everyone has their own voice. Yeah. His or her own voice. And um, that's why people keep coming back because they want to hear you yeah. and you alone. Now, let's talk about your podcast. Yes. Why did you feel that you wanted to start your podcast? I was really just interested in learning more about podcasting. I thought I was listening to a lot of podcasts at the time. I had a friend who was putting one out and it seemed really fun and interesting. So she just helped me get started. And yeah, the idea, I mean, it's gone through a lot of transitions. You know, I started it 
And when we were talking about, I can't remember, was it a decade ago? Was it 12 years ago? I don't remember anymore, but it was probably one of the only cocktail podcasts also when it started. And so I was really ambitious. I was doing a weekly show. I was interviewing three people per podcast and they're only 30 minute shows. So it was, it was a lot. I was running around. It was really difficult to maintain. I wasn't very good about sticking to my schedule because it was just, you know, I realized this is too much, too much. So uh, I was then approached by, there's a radio station here. It's a nonprofit radio station called World Radio Paris. And they approached me. They wanted to take my show and put it on there on rotation on their shows. And they were going to do the uh, editing and the production as well. And so I thought, this is great. This is going to give me more structure. I really need to figure out the best way to do it, which is why I went to just a monthly show and one inter- one person on the show, one very specific topic. And for me, that's better. And then, you know, I just send the files away and they do the production and it goes on the radio show. But then also, of course, it goes out in podcast format on my site and iTunes. And you know how that works everywhere you can get your everywhere you get your podcasts. So for me, that's been good. And I like the monthly schedule also as a podcast listener because I get so backed up on my listening to my podcast. So I'm going for quality over quantity, although lately I'm kind of itching to do a couple a month because there just is some interesting topics to dive into. It's not just for sharing the information. For me, it's such a nice way to learn about things. So it gives me the occasion to ask an expert questions that I might not know about Armagnac or other different parts of French drinking culture. A hundred percent. I feel like I learned so much from my guests, yeah. definitely. And that's I'm interested in learning and that's why I have them. So I, I totally understand. I can't even imagine how many podcasts there were when you started, because when I started mine in 2016, there were 250,000. So there must have been like 10,000 when you started. It must have been. Tiny. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to look back and think about this because, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I really don't remember when I started. I know. It's it's crazy. And now I just did a talk. There are 4,750,000 now. So there, that's a lot of stuff to get through if you're a listener. You know, absolutely. 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 And um, so tell us about the projects that you're working on now. Well, uh, I, you know, kind of maintaining projects with the site, with my blog, 52 Martinis. I expanded a bit to cover more than just cocktail bars, but now I'm like honing back in. I'm not covering spirits anymore. I'm not covering. There's enough people doing that. Uh, I really like to kind of go deeper rather than wider. So so I'm really bringing a focus back on um, just cocktail bars. And this year, um, well, this upcoming year, I am planning on doing a really big focus on all of France. Paris gets so much attention when it comes to cocktails. And as you know, the world's 50 best announcements just happened. And Paris always figures on the list, but you don't ever one time you had Montpellier on the list. But other than that, there's never anything but Paris. And I think it would be really nice for people to understand more that Paris is very different than all of France. So I'm going to be doing sort of a monthly rotation on the on the site where I cover a different French city, um, you know, where to drink in the bars. And then I do a podcast in combination with that on local drinking habits and practices and spirits. And, you know, because there's a really... There's really interesting regional divides in, in drinking and in, in spirits and in imperative culture. So, so really, so my big project to be focusing on next is sort of a tour de France of um, <laughs> cocktails and bars. I get a lot of questions too. As the only voting member and as the chair for France for World's 50 Best, 
I'm kind of the only person that people can, you know, bar, bar owners and, and just cocktail curious can go to for questions. And I get so many questions about, well, how can my, my bar get on the yeah. list? And how can we get more visibil- visibility on bars that aren't in Paris? And so I'm sort of taking that as my mission to, you know, in whatever small way I can, get some visibility for Bordeaux and for Lyon and for Dijon and for Toulouse and, you know, all of these, I mean, more cities than just that, but yeah, really like help people explore France through 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 a glass. I can't wait to hear that because, you know, on your site, I saw that you had done a post on Lyon. And actually, this leads so well right into the question that I was going to ask next, which is about kind of the drinking habits that you see either the Parisians or the French on a whole that you feel are quite different from anywhere else in the world that you either remember from your time in the States or just know from traveling? Well, I don't know how different this is from every place else, but I do think, you know, cocktails are very popular here, but they are still a very popular trend. So, and I think this is evidenced by, and this probably happens in lots of places, but I went to a press event this week and there was me and one other cocktail writer and all of the rest of the other journalists there were lifestyle journalists. They were very young lifestyle journalists because this appeals to a young crowd who wants to be trendy. They want to think they're on the cutting edge, but we're actually really in mainstream moment for cocktails here. But in general, when you're talking about sort of real French drinking culture, it's very traditional. You have your apero and it's probably a half pint of beer or maybe a glass of white wine or maybe champagne if it's a fancy one. You have that, you have one, um, you know, you have wine with your meal, you have a digestif. You know, you just don't see cocktails really taking hold in being integrated in a bigger way in sort of food and drink and restaurants and the culinary undertakings of the French. You do see it in some bars, like, for example, the Syndicat. They have their all-French menu. And there's a few other bars that have done this, you know, all-French products, all-French mm-hmm. ingredients. We're going to make these cocktails. Um, we're going to take you back so that you're drinking what your grandpa used to drink, um, you know, Calvados and and cognac and all of this. So I, I think what really stands out to me is is that the French are not embracing them in the same way, which is unusual because we have so many spirits here that are really the cornerstone of cocktail culture. You know, the cognacs and the eau de vies and the, the liqueurs, you know, you have Benedictine or Chartreuse um, right. and, and vermouth, you know, dry vermouth, which are crucial to cocktails. So, right. you know, the French are have these great products, but really they drink these products separately. And that could be this national pride, right? We created this amazing product. It's amazing as it is. Why do we need to mix it together? So there's that, the, you know, the, this idea of drinking things straight. And I also think you'll find this in the U.S. too, though. There's really interesting kind of regional practices. You know, you've got pastis that's in the South and that's, you know, kind of such a, a big deal there. And now, of course, I, I can't think of other regions off the top of my head, but, you know, certain things that different different areas of France will will focus on drinking. So so little regional pockets of trends and, and a real pride in these ingredients on their own. You know, it's so funny that you say that. I think it must be definitely an Italian and a French thing because I was eating some ice cream, some gelato in Venice. And I realized that it used to be that in a small cup, you could get a million flavors. So if you wanted four flavors, they just piled them in. This time, or just recently, they're not doing that. It's okay, you get one flavor or you pay for two. You know, you get two cups. You can't get a billion different little tastes. 
And I kind of complained to someone. I, I, I went to a lot of places. I said, why are you doing this? You know, that's so not, not nice. And he said, because you need to learn to just eat one thing at a time, because how can you appreciate it? You know what? You don't mix red and white wine together, he said. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess you're right. I have something to learn. So maybe it's that kind of mentality of why would I mix my vermouth with something unless maybe it's in cooking? Because you should taste the vermouth itself. You know, you would taste yeah. everything. And maybe that idea of the cocktail mixing everything together is truly American, you know, or English. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I really do think and I wonder this myself sometimes. Oh, yeah. If these flavors are so good. Why don't they just make it in a bottle and sell it? You know what I mean? Right. And I know that I, I I know. I mean, I'm cocktail cognizant enough to know right. like all the different reasons why you would make cocktails. But I do sometimes wonder that. Why don't they just huh. sell a dry martini in a bottle, which I know some places do, and call it good. But, you know, that yeah. kind of takes away from the infinite number of possibilities that you can have drinking when you mix them together. So exactly. Yeah. Now, I did want to skip over the app because I love the app. And oh, I love that it's free and that, you know, how did that come about and how do you even possibly keep it current? I mean, it's really tough. Honestly, it's really tough to keep it current, um, which is part of the reason it's free. If somebody's paid, well, <laughs> I guess that it could go either way. If I was getting paid, I might be <laughs> making more of an effort. But yeah, I, I try to update it regularly. But, you know, you can't just I can't update it every time I go to a bar. Right. Um, and it came about because for me, like most of the things that I do. Um, came about because I wanted it and I needed it. And when I'm out someplace, people are, you know, asking, where should we go for a cocktail? And I just don't keep everything in my brain. Like th I keep things organized digitally somewhere else. So I thought this would be really handy for me. And also my husband is in tech. And so he he's a developer. And so he, it would we thought it would be a nice project. He's not interested in cocktails. We thought, but we thought it would be a nice project to do together. So he handles the tech side. Obviously, I handle the content side. So it's just kind of a little joint thing that we can share. And, um, you know, he uses it to hone his skills, learn more. That is also why we still only have an iOS version and we don't have Android. But we are working on that. He's learning how to, to code the necessary to, to create an Android version. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, that's how it came about. And I just did an update. But of course, as soon as I did it, I realized two things that need to change. So now I'm, you know, bugging him like, hey, can you update this? I don't know how to update it. Hurry up. Update, update, update. But I think even for that, that's something like the podcast. I have to find a structure that works. And, you know, it might just be every Monday I send, send right. an update and then bug him until it's done. I don't know. I love that you give advice, you know, you, you for the favorite cocktail that you love in it. I mean, it makes it really alive. It makes it not just a list, but definitely your list. Yeah. Well, and I also, I mean, you know, if anybody's listening and uses it or will use it, I also really like to get feedback because, you know, it's useful for me, but I also, I want it to be useful for other people. So, you know, I, I like to hear about like what else would make it useful. Like we would kind of like a place where maybe people could leave comments. I know that's a whole other can of worms. And so we're talking about doing that. I don't know. But, um, but anyway, thank you for the nice words. And if you ever think of something that, you know, you think this would be great too. Feel free to feel free to send me that input. Well, right now I love it the way it is, but I Thank can't you. wait to use it the next time I go to Paris. Yes. Well, you won't need to use it because next time you come to Paris, we'll just go for drinks together. Oh, yes, that's even better. Yay. Thank you. Now, um, I always leave my guest asking two questions. And I was wondering, because I see the bar behind you, 
other than the one about the martini, which you already gave us. But if you have any top tips for your home bartender. Yeah, no, I mean, my top tips for home bartending, and I do make a lot of cocktails at home, is to make it easy for yourself. Figure out a way to make it wow without making it too difficult for yourself at the moment. So some things that I do are, I, I might find like a really interesting salt. So maybe I'll make a margarita and I'm going to rim it with, you know, smoked salt instead of just regular salt. So guests kind of feel like, oh, this is something special that I can't, uh, that I won't, wouldn't just get all the time, but it's not something that's doing my head in. I'm not trying to flare bartend in front of my guests. It's just a real simple way to add value. Or I have, um, I have a drink that, that you will be sharing and, um, it's, it's, you know, basically a riff on an old fashioned, but what I did is I went and I bought these little perfume bottles, you know, the little fl flacon with the little stoppers and it's the exact size of the amount of alcohol I would pour in a, in, in as an old fashioned. So what I'll do is before guests come, I always batch that ahead of time and then I pour it into the little glasses and I put it in the freezer. And so when, when I serve them to people, I bring out a glass with a big, ice block in it and the little perfume so they can pour it themselves and it's not a big deal and it doesn't really change the cocktail but it makes it more interactive for the guest it's not something that takes extra time for me it's just pretty you know and and they get excited and they feel like they're part of the cocktail making process so little things little things like that that i think are nice touches i also have um little temporary tattoos that i had created for my logo and so if somebody orders a martini they get a little tattoo paperclip to the edge of the glass. So it's really pretty basic drinks that I make, but with tiny touches that add value. And my other big, big tip for the home bartender is when you're having people over for drinks, make a menu, create a menu. I have a whole little menu like in, in its little cover because it's hard when people come, you know, you say, what would you like to drink? And they look at your bar and there's all, people are overwhelmed. So it's easier for you because you know what you're going to have to prepare. And it's easier for them. And it's fun. It adds a little bit of something special without, you know, it, it actually adds something special and makes things easier for your guest and you. So I love making a seasonal home cocktail menu. Those, let me say they are, and excuse my French accent, très, très chic. Well, thank you. I love those. And what I love most about them, because I've never heard these, what I love about these are that you are thinking about your guest. And it's not about you making it for yourself. Well, and isn't that really what it's all about, right? This is why I like home entertaining. The nicest way you can show that you love somebody is to make them have a great time and make them the star of the show. You're not the star. I'm not here to like, so you can see me like shaking and pour. Of course. This of is course. about you. And I love yeah. that. Um, now, the last question is, and it's a tough one because you are sitting in your apartment in Paris, but if you could have a drink Anywhere, any place right now, where would it be and what would you drink? Well, I don't know. I don't know what I would drink. Probably a martini. <laughs> of course. But if I could go anywhere and have a drink right now, it would be Singapore. Singapore is so hot for cocktails. You know, the last time I went was mm, probably 15 years ago and there was the Tippling Club and that was it. But now all you hear about is Singapore. I mean, Asia in general, but Singapore, Singapore, Singapore. It's, you know, got so many bars. I can't wait to explore. I will be going at some point in time soon, hopefully. But I think that I've already drank in so many different countries that that is someplace that's hot right now. I haven't been and I feel like the culture, the cocktail culture will be really interesting and, and different than what I've seen in so many other places where I have already uh, yes. drank. So that's where I'd go. 
I'm with you too. I would love to go there. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been so amazing to hear your whole history. Well, I don't know if it's that interesting, but it was also, it was really nice to see you and talk to you. You too. Hopefully something in there was interesting for listeners. So thank you very much. I can't wait to get the Eurostar right to Paris and be drinking with you soon. Me too. All right. Thanks. It was so lovely to have Forrest on the program, and I cannot wait to head to Paris to drink with her. It wouldn't be right to have any other cocktail than a martini as our cocktail of the week. Our cocktail of the week is not just any old martini recipe, but Forrest's go-to, and so easy to make. You'll need one part dry vermouth, four parts London dry gin, three dashes of orange bitters, and a preserved lemon rind. Add the vermouth, gin, and bitters to a mixing glass, add ice, and then stir, stir, stir. Then strain it into a martini glass and garnish it with a preserved lemon rind for a citrusy, briny pop. You'll find this recipe, more martini cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find most of the ingredients in our shop. After the craziness of Thanksgiving, Black Friday, and Cyber Monday, it's Giving Tuesday today, and that's a great excuse to donate to a cause that you think is important, change lives, and makes the world a better place. Then make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Next week, we're heading to Puglia to learn about its very special wheat. Until that time, bottoms up. Thank you.